We're reading tonight James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I told you we would be taking uh, the letter in short uh, sections because that's the nature of wisdom literature. One thing follows another, and uh, nothing is developed at any great length. There are a few passages in James that are more extensive. His consideration of the relationship between works and faith and so on in chapter 2. But by and large, it's little chunks of material uh, devoted to separate subjects, as, is in the, ca- as uh, the case is in Proverbs. <clears throat> now, James has already told us, To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. My steadfastness is meant a persevering faith in Christ, a faith that continues to believe, that continues to trust, that continues to look to Christ, no matter the obstacles, the spiritual difficulties, the temptations to unbelief that we encounter on every side. And as so often in the Bible, here also, trials are regarded as an instrument of spiritual growth. As the lifting of weights, um, so in the spiritual life, muscle grows with painful exercise and painful endurance. Trials are necessary to reaching Christian maturity. Now James picks up the thread of that interrupted thought from the very beginning of the chapter, but this time to make a different point, beginning to read at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the word translated remain steadfast in the ESV, was translated endures in earlier English translations of the Bible. That would seem to suggest that the trials in view are outward troubles, not inward temptations, because if it were (coughs) the latter, one would expect some word meaning resist rather than a word meaning endure. However, James goes on immediately to talk about temptations to sin, which obviously are in many respects inward trials or temptations. Or is James talking about trials that also become temptations, as so many trials do in one way or another? Under pressure, we find ourselves tempted to think thoughts and to perform actions that are unworthy as a Christian, and dishonoring to God. Again, as so often in the Bible, the reward for the endurance of trials is not at some point a life without trial. That life does not exist for Christians in this world, but the perfect and happy and complete life of the believer in heaven. The crown of life is a symbolic way of expressing the same thought as the Lord's well-done, good, and faithful servant crown conveys to us the image of a metal tiara, silver or gold, perhaps studded with gems. But to the people of the Greco-Roman world, it would have conveyed the image of a laurel wreath, the prize given to the winner at the end of a race. The Christian life, as you know, is 
compared to a race in several places in the Bible. Earlier in verses 2 and 3, the fruit of our trials was growth in godly character. Here, it is a future reward. By the way, this is not the only place in the New Testament where the prerequisite of salvation, the stipulated condition of salvation, is not faith in God, but love for God. Of course, those ideas overlap, and in a most important respect, they are two ways of saying the same thing. The one who believes will love, and vice versa. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We're going to return to that statement shortly, but remember the words try and tempt, trial and temptation, are the same Greek words. Context alone determines how they are to be translated. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now James was certainly aware that Satan was a tempter of men. But he's concerned here that no one excuse himself or herself uh, by being over, or at, uh, for being overcome by a temptation. He's going to brook no Flip Wilson saying, the devil made me do it. By the way, young people, that's an example of how hip your pastor is. <laughs> Referring, as I just did, to a popular culture icon. You, of course, all know who Flip Wilson is. He's very contemporary. He was born in 1933 died in 1998, so it, I mean, that's like just yesterday. Um, so James is reminding us that we are our own worst enemy and have only ourselves to blame if we succumb to temptation. In the same way, James says nothing about root causes, causes that we know very well can lend power, great power, to many temptations and lead to terrible sin, poverty, a broken family, ineffective parenting, child abuse, unfettered access to the Internet, the general tendencies of a culture, the influence of media, and so on, leave many people and many Christians all the more vulnerable to temptations of every kind. Satan and root causes are certainly real things, but James says nothing about either and keeps the attention on ourselves, for without our own sinful desires, neither Satan nor these root causes would have such an effect on us. And Christians, much of the time, rise above both, both Satan and root causes, to do what is right. Were there no Satan, no poverty, no sexual revolution, no internet, there would still be plenty of sin. Our first and worst enemy, James says, is ourselves. There's a fascinating passage in Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ in which the progress of a temptation is described. First, there is the bare thought of a sin, the source of which we sometimes know and sometimes do not. 
Then the thought of that sin is turned into a picture, which picture is displayed on the screen of our imagination. The attractiveness and the pleasure of the sin is then contemplated in the soul, and soon the consent of the soul is obtained and the sin is committed. In other words, says Akempis, our imagination stirs our affections or our desires, which in turn seduce the will and lead to the sinful act. Our problem is that our imagination and our desires are often stronger and more persevering than our will. That, for example, to take a lesser example, is why we eat too much and why it is hard to lose weight. And that's James' point here. We are, he says, lured into sin by our desires. And that's true whatever the desire may be. For ease, for rest, for fame, for money, for approval, for revenge, for sexual pleasure, for control. Whatever the desire may be, it is the desire that eventually conquers the will and leads to the sin. Martin Luther put this same understanding of how temptations work in a more homely way in a letter to his organist, Matthias Weller, which he wrote in October of 1524. If you allow one thought to enter and you pay attention to it, the devil will force ten additional thoughts into your mind until at last he overpowers you. Therefore, the best thing you can do is to wrap the devil on the nose at the very start. Act like the man who, whenever his wife began to nag and snap at him, drew out his flute from under his belt and played merrily until she was exhausted and let him alone. <clears throat> Calvin sent similar advice to a Christian friend of some wealth and position. He had written to Calvin describing his dilemma. If he were to stay on his substantial estates, he would have to conform to Rome. But if he gave them up, he would face an uncertain and insecure financial future. Calvin's reply reflects James' wisdom here. What you should do is to leave before you are sunk so deep in the mire that you cannot get out, and the sooner you leave, the better. In other words, don't let the desires of your flesh work away until they have conquered your will. Sin, after all, brings forth death. The reverse of the crown of life in verse 12. And if we reckon with that great danger, we'll be strong not to tolerate its presence in our hearts and lives. Now, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So far from leading us into temptation, God is the source of every good thing we enjoy. James, don't be deceived, my brothers, suggests that the temptation for even Christians to suspect the goodness and the wisdom of God's ways is very real. The sun's light varies through the day. It may be diminished by clouds during the daylight hours, and it disappears at night. But God is not like that. He is invariably faithful, invariably generous, 
invariably wise. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. (coughs) Of all God's gifts, first among them is this new life that God has granted us, that he has created within us. Brought us forth by the word of truth is a way of describing what Jesus called the new birth or what Paul called the new creation. That point at which and that work of the Holy Spirit by which the Christian life and eternal life is begun in otherwise spiritually dead people. These early Christians are regarded as a kind of first fruits for the far greater harvest to be expected as Christian missions begin to bite into heretofore unreached populations. James' argument in verses 16 to 18 might be put this way. We need holy hearts to persevere in our trials and resist our temptations. But our hearts are impure. But God can be counted on to give us what we need, and so the very first thing he gave us addressed our ultimate need. He gave us a new heart, a heart capable of resisting temptation. Again and again in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in the Gospel of John, among other places, the new heart or nature, a heart that is expressive of God's holy nature, is the essential first step in the Christian life. But it is a step we can't take ourselves. New hearts are, and in the nature of the case, they must be a divine gift. As in the first creation, so in the second, it's God's Word that produces the new thing. As God spoke and the world was made, so God speaks and new life is brought forth from old and dead human life. Have you ever thought about that in your own case? At some point in your life, whether you know what point it was, exactly when it was or not, at some point in your life, for some of you in your mother's womb, for others in, your, in the middle of your life, God spoke and your heart was suddenly changed. Your nature was transformed. Your heart of stone became a heart of flesh, as Ezekiel puts it. Your old heart became a new heart. That happened in your life. Now, this way of looking at our situation poses a problem. We, if we have a new heart, where does the evil desire come from of which James speaks in verse 14? If we have a new nature, why are we still so susceptible to temptation? There's no simple solution to this problem, no easy way to form the statements of the Bible and the nomenclature that it uses into an easy harmony of truth. The Bible speaks, as you know, of the war between the flesh and the spirit in the Christian life. But it also uses that same word, flesh, to describe the fallen human nature that we had by conception and that had to be replaced by the new birth. So somehow, in some way, we still have that old nature within us. This morning in our confession of sin, we confess to God 
that we are by nature sinful and unclean. But the Bible also speaks of the new creation, of the death of the old man, even while it frankly describes our struggle with the very desires that belong to our old man and our old nature. However we describe this duality of sin and righteousness in the interior life of a Christian, as Paul does when he speaks of the sin that dwells within me, or as he implicitly does when he commands us to put on the new self, as if we have the new self, but it isn't yet operative in our experience. All of us know this reality, however we describe it. We have a new heart, we have new desires, we have new commitments that arise from this new nature, but we're dragged down somehow by the old nature that having been replaced still to some degree in some way operates powerfully within us. As Paul put it with much anguish in Romans 7, 14 to 25, ourselves are divided as if there were actually two separate persons within us. We need both of these truths, that we have a new heart, that our nature will therefore eventually fully and perfectly express itself in the love of God and obedience to Him. And we have in that new nature the wherewithal now to resist our temptations. That ought to give us hope and confidence in the battle with sin. And second, we're not done with sin in this world, not by a long shot, and must therefore prepare ourselves for battle every day. Thus far, the Word of God. Now, I will think that you will admit that James is actually pretty clear here, however you may question some of his wording, his way of putting things. Our lives are beset with temptations of every kind. We know that. And alas, as James will say in chapter 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. We know that too. But fundamental to right thinking about our sin and our temptations is the recognition of our own absolute and unqualified culpability. We cannot blame God for our sins of thought, word, and deed. Perhaps that seems obvious, but James knows very well that we Christians, even we Christians, are prone to do that very thing. After all, we know And we Calvinists particularly know that God is in control of all things, which means human sin. If God were not in control of human sin, then the one thing that fatally threatens our hope of everlasting life would be the one thing that God does not control. It takes but a little thought to realize that if God doesn't control everything, if everything is not subject to his will, then nothing is finally subject to his will. But the fact of the matter is the Bible makes no effort to deny this or to hide God's absolute sovereignty even over the sinful thoughts and actions of men. Since sin is such a great power in human life and human affairs, It has to be subject to God's will. No human being can sin himself out from under the sovereignty of God. And the Bible is not only perfectly willing to admit this, it asserts it 
in some ways so direct and so peremptory as to seem almost calculated to offend. We've been reading this morning in the early chapters of the book of Acts and already twice or three times we have come across statements that the worst sins ever committed in the history of mankind were committed according to the plan and the purpose of God. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. That's chapter 1, verse 16. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's 2.23. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The hatred, the envy of the religious leadership, the cowardice of the Roman governor, their conspiracy to murder an innocent man. All of that, the plan and the purpose of God. And those statements are hardly unique in the Bible. We have, for example, the famous statement of Joseph to his brothers that while when they sold their brother into slavery in Egypt, they were doing an act of pure evil. They were, <coughs> excuse me, acting with evil intentions. God meant all of that for good. The same act, bitter jealousy leading to a horrible betrayal of family bonds, was God's plan for the salvation of the family eventually. We don't have any difficulty understanding the differing motivations, but the fact remains that the brother's terrible sin was a part of God's plan. A more interesting case is furnished by a comparison between 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, and 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Both are describing the origin of David's sinful act in numbering the people near the end of his Reign, but in First Chronicles, that act is attributed to Satan. We read, Satan rose up against Israel and incited Davis, David to take a census. But in Second Samuel, the same act is attributed to God. We read, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them. The very same sinful act is described as the intention of of both Satan and God. Now surely God and Satan are not, as we would say today, on the same wavelength, but they brought the same sinful event to pass. Or think of the famous episode when the prophet Micaiah told Ahab that God had sent a lying spirit into the hearts of his so-called prophets precisely to send him to death in battle. So God provoked false prophets to lie. Actually, there are a great many such statements in the Bible designed to prove whatever else each may be teaching us, that God is in absolute control of even the sins of mankind and even the sins of his people. 
if the heart of the king is in God's hand and if he can turn it in whatever direction he pleases, then God is in control of his thoughts, so many of which are sinful. In any case, the Bible makes it clear that God is not the idle spectator of our sins. This, as you know, is the scandal of the doctrine of divine sovereignty. The typical objection to it is that if we believe this of God, if we believe that his control is so absolute that it embraces even the sinful thoughts and actions of man, then God must be responsible for those sins. Indeed, God must be a sinner himself because he is causing others to sin. This objection is so obvious that Paul anticipates it against his own doctrine in Romans chapter 9. In speaking of God hardening a human heart, in this case the heart of Pharaoh, and what is hardening except inclining it to sin, the apostle writes, you're going to say, if no one can resist his will, why does he still find fault? In other words, if God foreordained your sins, they're his fault, not yours. But Paul rejects the logic and replies, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God has an absolute right to do with his creatures what he will. But that's hardly all that the Bible says in answer to that objection. The Bible rings the changes on the holiness of God, on his antipathy towards sin, the offense that he takes at it, his hatred of it, that there is not a whisper of unrighteousness in God and that he cannot do evil or lead others to do evil. What James says here when he says that God cannot be tempted by evil and that he tempts no one is in fact entirely typical of a hundred statements that we find in Holy Scripture. What we have here, in fact, is simply a subset of the larger problem of reconciling an absolute divine sovereignty with human freedom and accountability. And for all the ink that has been spilt through the ages, no one has been able to solve that problem. God is in absolute control of everything that happens in this world. Everything that happens, happens according to his plan. And in the life of man, his control is equally absolute. From the number of hairs on his head to the thoughts of his heart. But man himself is responsible for his life and he has no one to blame but himself when he does what is wrong. I don't know how to explain how both things are true at one and the same time. Nobody does. But the Bible asserts both truths repeatedly, unashamedly, and often side by side with one another. It's here, along with that, the doctrine of the triunity of God and the union of the human and divine natures in the person of Jesus Christ, that a finite and frail human mind uh, finds itself in front of a reality so large and so complex and so rooted in divine powers that we cannot possibly understand or comprehend that it simply must say it cannot explain, it can only believe and confess. 
James, who obviously shared this high view of God's absolute rule and sovereignty, says that when we're tempted, we'll say to ourselves, and we would only say this if we believed in God's sovereignty, well, if God didn't want me to commit this sin, he should have kept me away from the temptation. Or, if God is in control of even my thoughts, obviously he's to blame for them if they are sinful. We may never make such statements to ourselves or others so baldly, but down deep, that's the rationale by which we excuse ourselves. For is that not what we are saying? We must be saying when we say that we can't help ourselves. It's God's fault. It's not ours. But James reminds us it's not God's fault. It's our fault. And the fact is, every Christian knows that. In fact, every human being knows that. We know ourselves too well. We know we're not robots. We have desires. We have a will. We can and do control both of them all the time, every day. All manner of things we might do, but we choose not to do. When we fail to control our desires and our will, we know good and well we have no excuse. If we tried to excuse ourselves, we'd be denying our very humanity as we experience it day by day, making one decision after another as we do as human beings for reasons that are perfectly clear to us and persuasive to us. And as Christians, often, very often, Choosing to do what is right rather than what is sinful precisely because we want to do what is right. If we can do that much of the time, we know very well we could do it these other times when we fail to do so. And when we don't do what we ought to do, we know why. Our desires in that case got the better of us. We know very well, however impossible it may be for us to explain the relation between God's absolute sovereignty and human freedom and accountability, we know very well that we weren't compelled to sin. We chose to sin. We did it because we wanted to. When the Bible tells us this same thing as it does repeatedly, it's only paying us the respect due to the person's That we are, with a mind, with a heart, and with a will, we are entirely capable of controlling. And in this there is a deeper truth. Malcolm Muggeridge, in repudiating his earlier hope of some utopia on earth, wrote this in his spiritual autobiography, Chronicles of Wasted Time. The essential quality of our lives, as I now understood was a factor not so much of how we lived, but of why we lived. It was our values, not our production processes or our laws or our social relationships that governed our existence. That's right. Isn't that what James says here? Both when he speaks of sinful desires as our great problem and when he speaks of the crown of life and getting the crown of life as the motive for our obedience, and when he speaks of the goodness of God. It's far too easy for you and for me. We do this far too much. Spend our time thinking about how we live our lives 
and not about why we are living them, for what purpose we are doing the things that we do. Simply ask yourself the question, why am I doing this? Simply to ask the question often clarifies the situation immediately. It's a very important exercise that, alas, we perform too rarely. Why am I so angry? Why am I acting and speaking angrily? The very issue that James raises in the next chapter or the next part of chapter 1. Answer that question honestly and you'll know immediately where you stand morally. Why am I sitting here in front of this computer screen playing a video game or doing something worse? Why? What is my purpose? Force yourself to ask and answer that question. Why am I giving vent to my fears? Why am I wringing my hands and pacing the floor? Why? Why am I seeking this particular job or watching that particular show or eating this particular snack between meals or ignoring my children or complaining to my wife? Why am I avoiding that particular person? Or why am I so anxious to be liked and approved by that other person? Why? In far too many ways, you and I allow ourselves to be strangers to ourselves. I expect we actually know ourselves pretty well, but we don't think about what we know, we don't bring it to mind, and we don't reckon with that self-knowledge day by day. C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his letters to an American lady, humans are very seldom either totally sincere or totally hypocritical. Their moods change, their motives are mixed, and they are often themselves quite mistaken as to what their motives are. But they can find out easily enough, if only they care to. An honest reckoning with our motivations, with our desires, will make a great many things clear in very helpful ways. It was Socrates who first said that the unexamined life was not worth living. But the Bible has a great many things to say that amount to the same thing. Consider your ways. What's going on? Why are you behaving as you are? That was the challenge the Lord gave to the people of Israel through the prophet Haggai. Examine yourselves, which is what Paul said to the Corinthian Christians. Watch yourselves, John tells the readers of his second letter. There is a looking at ourselves, an examination of ourselves that is essential to Christian growth in godliness. It was the Lord Jesus who was always, as you remember, going down to the bottom of things, to the motivations, to the desires that explained our behavior. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them, he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because a false motive, a selfish desire, utterly ruins the behavior, however proper that behavior might be in its own self. Why? Because God looks on the heart. He knows the motives of the heart. Putting a man on the moon in, what was that, 1968 or 1969? 
was a phenomenal achievement with the state of technology what it was in those days. But in retrospect, the achievement loses a good bit of its luster when we learn that the motivation for the decision to do so was jealousy of Russian success in space. President Kennedy wanted to outdo them. He wanted their achievements to be made to seem small in comparison. He would tell meetings of his advisors, I need something, anything, where we can beat the Russians. And so he went to the moon. False motives and desires ruin the behavior of others for us too if we ever learn what those motives and desires actually are. Human beings, you know, are the only creatures in the world with motives, with selective desires that produce behavior. Human beings are the only ones who can do something for one reason and claim to be doing it for another. The Puritan masters of the Christian life insisted that realistic self-knowledge and self-awareness was essential to spiritual maturity. And here is James telling us that among the things we need to know about ourselves, among the things we need to be aware of, are our desires. A man who desires the crown of life, who has his sights set on heaven, is simply not going to behave in the same way as a man whose desires are set on different things, other things. In fact, it's a fixed law of the spiritual world that actions follow desires and motivations. This is the point, the principle that James has given us here. That is how powerful motivations and desires are. They shape, they direct, they control our behavior. And that's why the Lord Jesus was always going down to the bottom, to a man's motivations, his desires, in his teaching about what it meant to live a godly life. A woman who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is simply not going to live the same way as a woman who desires other things and is motivated by other interests. Think, for example, of a perennial problem that we all have, getting our feelings hurt. If our desire is for approval or for acceptance or for praise or for position, it will be comparatively easy for us to get our feelings hurt. If our desire is for a righteous life, humility, grace, obedience to God, it's going to be much more difficult for someone to hurt our feelings simply because our desires direct our feelings and our actions in a very different direction. If we're not in it for the recognition, we're not in it for the praise, we'll simply not care very much if such things are taken away from us. Or better, if someone tries to take them away from us, imagining that we care about those same things because so many others do. Put the question to yourself more directly still. If you have to explain to yourself why you are sitting in front of a computer screen watching pornography or playing a video game for hours on end, I say if you have to admit to yourself why you're doing that, 
I guarantee the bloom is going to go off the rose. That's why we rarely ask the why question. We don't want to know. And why don't we want to know? Because James tells us we've got this new heart from God. And our new heart knows very well what we ought to desire and why we ought to desire it. In fact, the great effect of having a new heart is that the desires that now come out of our heart are the very opposite of the desires that we would have had by nature and without the transformation of our lives by the Spirit of God. We would not desire holiness. We would not desire heaven. The great divide that separates the saved from the unsaved in this world is the yawning chasm that separates our desires from theirs. Peter speaks of the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Our new heart is going to be embarrassed, ashamed, even appalled if we have to admit to ourselves that what we really want is ease rather than useful labor, pleasure rather than purity, the satisfaction of the moment rather than the crown of life. How different if we desire instead to be with Christ, if we desire the heavenly country, if we desire to live a genuinely godly life for the sake of Jesus Christ, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, all the things that are said about Christians in the Bible, all of them that have to do with a Christian's desires. To be sure, introspection can be carried too far. It can paralyze us rather than help us. If we're forever asking ourselves why we thought such a thing or did such a thing, we'll scarcely have time to think or to do. But too much introspection is a problem that only a few of us have. Too little is far more likely to be our case. And a healthy dose of that kind of examination and introspection is a powerful weapon against allowing our desires to overcome our wills and sink us in the face of our temptations. What are your desires? What do you want? What's really important to you? What motivates you? What gets you going? Put those questions to yourself. Answer them honestly. And if you're not sure how to answer those questions, though I suspect you do, James is telling you that an examination of what you do, how you spend your time, the temptations you succumb to, will answer those questions accurately and soon enough. Listen to James' wisdom. Temptations are made powerful by, de by desires. The wrong sort of desires are our undoing in a world as full of temptation as ours is. So keep your wits about you. Remember that you have a new heart, that God has given you a completely new set of desires. You don't need to search for holy desires. They're already there within you. But you need to awaken them, identify them, and keep them in sharp focus as you live your life. And perhaps the easiest, the simplest way to do that is to keep asking yourself from time to time, and especially when you realize that you're being tempted, what is it that I really want? Why am I living? What am I living for?
we have something the Puritans didn't. Sticky notes. Put one on your computer up in the corner where you can't help seeing it and write on it simply, Why am I here? Is it for the crown of life? Nothing so commends and empowers holy desires in a Christian's life than simply remembering that you have them and what they are. And in the same way, nothing so weakens unholy desires as to have them dragged out into the cold light of day. Amen.